Hi, listeners. We're taking a few weeks off to prep for our next season, but in the meantime, here's one of our favorite episodes. Enjoy. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Hey, Steve. Hey, Cheryl. We're going to be talking about friendships today. Yes, we're going to focus on friendships, troubled friendships. And I'm certainly not happy that these letter writers are in friendships that are painful, but I'm happy to be able to talk about friendship because it's a relationship. We get lots and lots and lots of letters that have to do with marriages, romantic relationships, relationships with family. But the thing about friendship is that it is profound to us, it is deeply important to us, Mm -hmm. and yet there's a kind of code of silence around it because it is, if you think about it, a relationship that is purely voluntary. It is. And and in some ways, I think it makes it harder to have conflict with a friend. It certainly feels riskier to me than, you know, when I'm upset with my husband, he knows it. Uh, I can talk to him about there's that level of... I guess, trust and familiarity and unconditional love that you feel like you can risk conflict and come out the other side. Yeah. With a friend, it, it it becomes a lot more complex. Do you find that you're more hesitant? Oh, absolutely. The whole relation, the nature of the relationship is incredibly tenuous. Like you said, it's volunteer. You're there to have right. fun. You don't want to cause trouble. That's right. And think about how many books there are that are about marriages or family and investigating the you know underside or the dark side of those relationships and how few there are about friendship. Uh, Tim Creter wrote this amazing book that I love called We Learn Nothing. It's a book of essays. He writes about the painful process of what he calls defriending. And I just want to sort of read this to frame what we're going to talk about a little bit. He says, defriending isn't just unrecognized recognized by some social oversight. It's protected by its own protocol, a code of silence. Demanding an explanation wouldn't just be undignified. It would violate the whole tacit contract on which friendship is founded. The same thing that makes friendship so valuable is what makes it so tenuous. It is purely voluntary. You enter into it freely without the imperatives of biology or the agenda of desire. Officially, you owe each other nothing. Right. And, you know, I can think back to a lot of friendships in my life that have ended really painfully. I mean, I still carry around a kind of wound from a lot of these friendships. And I never actually talked it through with the person. The night I was reading, doing my big reading in grad school, the guy who had been sort of my lifeline in that program, I'd asked him to come over to my house before the reading to have a beer with me and kind of help me mellow out. And I needed him in my corner. And I was really saying to him, like, buddy, I'm throwing you the rope of love. Please come into town because he was living outside of town. And, you know, like, come have a beer with me. And I've never forgotten. He just did not show up. Mm -hmm. And not only did he not show up, he was out to dinner with a whole bunch of guys who I was really on the outs with. And he sort of barely managed to get to the reading. But we never had a discussion about it. 
we just were suddenly not friends anymore. And like to this day, I've never said to him, hey man, you were a really great friend and that hurt and I get that we're not friends anymore, but you meant a lot to me or whatever we would have to say to Mm -hmm. one another. Mm -hmm. Isn't that strange? The decision around when and how to end a friendship in some ways is even more murky and tenuous than relationships that are much more codified where there's a clear agenda. Well, and I think a lot of people have that experience where a friendship sort of drifts away in ways that you think, okay, is this is this just circumstantial that life moves on and you're busy? Or did something happen that we just never confronted? That's right. The, the biggest friendship loss I experienced in my life, it was it was kind of the opposite of the one you describe in, in that we in some ways our relationship exceeded the bounds of friendship in ways that were ultimately destructive to the friendship. Hmm. People would see the two of us and, and assume that we were lovers because huh. she and I had such a, a bond, and we were so intimate. It, I was in my twenties. It was this first big woman friendship. Yeah, you know, grown up female friendship, and it was so emotionally intense that it almost devoured me. Wow, you know, it really, it was it was traumatic to end it. It okay. felt like a heartbreak. It felt like a romantic breakup when our friendship ended, and and we didn't just drift apart. We fought and fought and fought and fought, and we realized we couldn't be friends anymore. And it wasn't because we didn't love each other. And it isn't that I want to go back and be friends with her, because frankly, I don't think we could be. Right. But it was it was high drama. It wasn't what a friendship is. Right. And we're going to hear a, a letter that, that is dealing with that struggle as well. So let's, let's hear our first letter. All right. Dear Sugars, I want to break up with a friend, but I feel too guilty to do it. I even feel guilty for having this thought. I've been wanting to break up with her for a while now, just, you know, gradually transition out. But this year, she's been going through a really hard divorce. So instead, I said yes to every request she sent me and accidentally became her main confidant throughout this process, which is most definitely far from over. Mm. As a result of decisions made during her marriage, my friend is now isolated in the suburbs. Her newly ex-husband is majorly depressed, unemployed, living with his mom, and does things like almost overdose on sleeping pills while caring for their two-year-old. My friend is not a bad person. Sometimes she's kind of fun, but she has two critical flaws. One, she never expresses any interest in my life, despite the fact that I know absolutely every detail of her life, particularly the ins and outs of this divorce, but also about her crazy sister, the niece she's worried about, how her dad cheating on her mom has made her feel, the specifics of a boss she doesn't like, Meanwhile, this year, my seven-year-old was diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder, and she doesn't know about it because she has never asked me about my life, not once. The other fatal flaw is that she always, always wants to talk about high school. We're 34. We met in high school, but it's embarrassing and boring to be discussing events and people from 20 years ago. She even wants to go to places we used to go in high school. I just like spending time with her and have for several years. I want to do less of it this year, but I'm worried she doesn't have any other friends. I've offered her sane and kind advice about her life, and in trying to be a good friend, have encouraged her to rely on me. But I need out. Can I do this? And if so, how? Sincerely, awful friend. Oh. <laughs> I mean, oh. she's she's actually too good a friend. Yeah. I mean, awful friend. You're, you're not an awful friend. But I will say that in, in my friendships— Sometimes we fall into this particular kind of pattern that's 
pretty dysfunctional, but I think it's pretty common where there's an inequality in the friendship and one party in the friendship is messed up mm-hmm. and has a lot of drama and is understandably pretty self-involved about that drama. And the other person is there and really feels burdened by not being able to express what he or she is going through, but puts up with it because what they get is like they feel like they're the support. But awful friend, I think, and this is the part where I feel a certain familiarity. I've kept a lot of friends around because it made me feel better about what I was struggling with to be hanging out with and being a support for somebody who was an even bigger mess. Uh And what I was actually failing to do in the process was then confronting the fact that I didn't really have certain things together. Mm -hmm. Awful friend, you're her friend and friendship is not social work. It's a different arrangement and it doesn't have to be completely co-mutual and equal, but it is quite clear actually that you dislike spending time with this woman. Yeah, and I I have a lot of sympathy for Awful Friend in many regards, but one of them, too, it's just hard to be friends with somebody who doesn't ask you a single question about your life. Yeah. You know, obviously, when someone's going through a drama and a trauma, they're going to be self-absorbed. They're going to need to do most of the talking in a friendship. Right. But, uh, you know, the, friendship is this two-way street. We're not talking about... You know, the one time you got together for drinks and the whole time, you know, you talked about this friend's divorce. We're talking, it sounds like a pattern. And I I know in my own friendships, there have been times where I have been the one who needed to do most of the talking. Right. After my mom died, you know, those years in my 20s where I needed somebody to talk to. I needed somebody to cry to. And my friend's saved me. They pulled me through. And every one of those friends now are people, you know, over these 20-some years, those people who listened to me then are people now I have listened to. That's right. I have seen them through their divorces and their parents' deaths and their births of their children. And, right. and so I think that if the, if Awful Friend isn't feeling that, you know, that, that this hasn't been reciprocal over time, then it is time to leave the relationship. We aren't saying Listen, if you have a friend who's blabbing on about herself a lot for the last six months, you should ditch her. Right. Uh, because I don't think that that's right. I think that we have different needs over time. But it, it sounds like this is somebody who is not uh, holding her interest. She, she's, her, her affection has profoundly waned. And what's clear also, awful friend, is that you know this is a relationship that's stuck in the past. Mm-hmm. It's all about any of the good times are all about high school. It's either a very unhappy present and a scary future or the glory days of the past. And interestingly, you're actually depriving yourself of the pleasure of a healthy functioning friendship or set of friendships that you can live with in the present, Mm -hmm. who can help you shoulder the burden of contending with this tough diagnosis for your son or whatever else is happening in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, Proust has this great quote, let us be grateful to people who make us happy. They are the charming gardeners who make our souls blossom. Like friendship is supposed to give you good things, happiness, a sense of being less alone, and allow you to forge a a future and a present. And oddly enough, awful friend, you're kind of holding yourself back. You're sort of captive to this woman's agenda. And if you can imagine what it would be like if this friend actually heard this letter it would be clear that you do not have a friendship. It would be abundantly clear to her that you do not have a healthy friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, th- the solution is not awful, friend, to write the full contents of what you've written to us. But I- if you want out of the friendship, you probably do owe her the gentle dignity of letting her know rather than, again, agreeing to this code of silence. Mm-hmm. 
And I guess, you know, thinking about what advice we can give awful friend. Yeah. You know, my advice is like, oh, gradually transition out. And it seems that Awful Friend has, has sort of tried that. She says that that's what her plan was before the big drama of this divorce came along. And so one of the things that I might encourage her to do is instead of maybe creating another drama in this friend's life and confronting her with all of these mm-hmm. feelings that, you know, that are included in this letter, right. um, maybe what awful friend can think about is okay you were there for her in her time of crisis now go back to that business of gradually transitioning out even if it does take some direct conversation that's not a confrontation but just hey listen i can't get together i can't talk right now actually i didn't mention to you that that my son is that's having right. a health crisis right now right and so i just don't have the emotional space to be there for you and i wish you luck you know, to say something like that that does at least communicate some need for distance, a need for a gentle stepping back from this relationship. Yeah. And we have another, a letter that's not so dissimilar from the one that Awful Friend wrote uh, yeah. that, that talks about another kind of friendship that's even messier. Yes. The letter writer is grappling with a lot of the same issues about a friendship that's no longer functioning and how to extricate yourself. But I think the details are quite different. Dear Sugars, my friend is proudly bipolar and I want to walk away. When she's down, she's despondent, suicidal, prone to accusatory crying, late-night phone calls. When she's up, she's charming, witty, carefree. Sometimes she's able to walk that tightrope and handle the trials of everyday life, which is where she was when we first met. Inevitably, she falls off. She can't keep a job for more than a year. She's adamant that mania and depression are core parts of who she is and refuses to take medication. She loves to travel, bouncing between the homes of people she's just befriended so she doesn't have a regular therapist. When she returns to town, she throws big parties, sends mass emails to everyone she knows asking for job references, loaner cars, and couch space. Three years ago, as she told me slyly, she knew she, quote, couldn't live without having a baby, so she let a guy think she was on the pill. Now there's a kid in tow. Sugars, this isn't about fixing her. I've watched other friends and family try to intervene, and there's no fixing to be done, not from the outside. No, this is about me. I wish I were someone with a bottomless well of kindness, but I'm not. It takes significant energy for me to listen quietly to her endless dramas where nothing is her fault and the world conspires against her. She feels like an obligation or a dress I've outgrown, not a friend. And then I feel horribly guilty for thinking that. A few fellow friends have told her their friendship is over. Others have pulled closer, saying she's so unreliable that the kid needs a community. Pulling away feels selfish. Investing more is unfathomable. And treading water is no solution. Sugars, what do I do? Signed, I want out. Hmm. It seems I want out is so adamant, so clear. So clear she wants out of this friendship. I mean, she's saying, I don't want this anymore. This, I get nothing from this relationship. And she gets less than nothing. She actually gets incredibly annoyed and distressed at having to be sort of on the other end of this constant um, turmoil, essentially, the, witnessing this life in turmoil. And the only thing keeping her I, from leaving it entirely is, I guess, this idea that she thinks doing so is selfish. But But underneath that, I would think about this. Why not invest your time in someone who can return your compassion, 
you know, uh, support for what you might be experiencing or, or just a joy in life that doesn't involve managing somebody who isn't managing a serious mental illness. Right. A, a woman in this circumstance needs to come to a point where she recognizes that she needs to treat herself as somebody who has had a, a bipolar person in my life and seeing it in a very up-close way. And I was somebody who stuck around and tried to be there because I thought, well, they need somebody. Mm-hmm. And if I'm cut off, you know, I become part of the enemy in the world that's conspiring against her, then um, I won't have any influence. I won't be able to affect any good. But that's not a friendship. That's a hostage situation. Mm-hmm. And it may be that the most compassionate thing you can do is walk away and allow this woman to hit rock bottom so that she recognizes that she has to get treatment. And I have to say, with bipolar disorders, sometimes that's what has to happen, and you don't know where bottom is, and that is terrifying. But unless she recognizes that, quote-unquote, mania and depression are not a core part of who she is, but a mental Mm -hmm. illness, bad chemicals that are really causing her mind and heart to not work properly and put her and her child in danger, until she comes to that on her own, She's not going to be any good. Well, I was going to say the only thing that I want out is duty-bound to do is if she thinks that the child is being abused or neglected in ways um, that violate child protection laws or the ways that children should be treated, um, she should call the authorities. But other than that, I think that there is no question that she has every right and every reason to end the friendship. Um, and whatever way she chooses to do that, that might be direct. That might be a letter, a phone call, a, a, an email that says, please do not contact me anymore. I don't want to continue this friendship mm-hmm. or just that kind of going dark. Yeah. You know, and literally not playing along because mm-hmm. a lot of this, especially when somebody's got a big manic personality, is sort of playing along as if their behavior is appropriate and okay. When Joining in fact, the mad parade that's right. of this of yeah. this friendship. Which, in fact, is enabling. Uh-huh. I'll say one more thing, which is I love this image. Uh, maybe love is the wrong word, but I think it's so precise. Of She feels like a dress I've outgrown. And you see an undercurrent in both these letters of a friend who's more able and more together feeling guilty because they've psychologically and emotionally move to a a better, more together place Mm -hmm. in their life. It's a version of a kind of survivor guilt. Mm -hmm. Like, oh no, I'm going to have to leave this person behind. But the truth is, you probably need to be in company that is more together. And by together, I mean more compassionate, more empathic, more able to give and have a really mature adult relationship that's mutual. Don't feel, I mean, I understand the impulse to feel guilty about that, but it's not your fault that you have it more together. That's right. It's actually your accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, who knows what will happen over time? That That is one of the most interesting things about friendships. You sometimes can think you've absolutely reached the end of the road, that there's no going back and that friendship is done. And then years pass and something else happens. We're going to have a guest on the show, the writer Emily Chenoweth. And she had a very interesting experience with a friend she had in her youth. Um, and she wrote an essay about it. And we're, I would like to welcome her onto the show now. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. All right. So. Yeah. So tell us. Well, here, you know, let me say the first thing I read of yours was this essay. It's in an anthology. It's called The Friend Who Got Away. Tell us about it. It takes place at Swarthmore College, where I went in 1990. I felt sort of straight out of the cornfields, and I met 
within the first couple of days, this girl who lived in my hall by the name of Heather, and she was from Santa Monica, and she was a little more worldly, but she was also a little bit more of a hippie. And we sparked a friendship very, very quickly. I don't exactly remember how it began, but it was sort of like falling in love, very sudden, very head over heels. Everything was really magical between us. Um, I just would be so excited to see her, and everything was bigger and brighter and more wonderful when she was around. I'd never had an experience like that, um, short of falling in love um, romantically with someone, which I had done, and then fallen out of love again. But anyway. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> that is another story. Um, and we had one semester of that um, wonderment. And then I went home for winter break back to Ohio. And I think on New Year's Eve in the morning, my dad came down uh, to make coffee in the morning and he found my mom lying on the floor. And he thought she'd fallen and hit her head, but uh, it turned out that she'd had a seizure, and this seizure was the first presenting symptom of what turned out to be an inoperable brain tumor. Um, And I didn't quite know that when I went back to school in January, but I knew that things were wrong. And then the news came later um, that it was terminal, and things went downhill for me pretty quickly. And Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It just, she, she she was stricken in January, and she died the following November. But I should say that Heather came home with me for the service and sat in the very front row mm. with the family. Mm-hmm. Like, all my high school friends, my ex-boyfriend, all the people I'd known for years were in the back of the church, and Heather is up there in the front. And even though I can't deal, she is crucial to me. It was so important that I have her there. So she was really heroic. Um, and at some level, I understood that. But at other levels, I didn't care, I guess. And everything falls apart. And I become just a different and much more terrible person. I felt horrible. And frankly, I wanted everyone around me to feel horrible, too. I was not a generous, depressed person. And that really affects my friendships with everyone, um, in particular with Heather. And, you know, she became closer with our other friends and other things happened. And our friendship just sort of limped along for a number of years. Um, So some years pass. (laughs) Years pass. We're both living in New York. We're kind of friends. And we are friends, but not in that close, wonderful way. And then Elisa Chappelle, who was working in a Brooklyn writer space with Heather, asked Heather if Heather would write an essay for this anthology about female friendships and their demise. And Heather said, yes, but I think you should ask Emily as well. Wow. And so (laughs) she did. So when you and Heather were asked to write these essays, you were acquaintances, but you had this really intimate history. Is that, how would you characterize your... We were closer than that, but everything was always just fraught. I mean, I think... There was a feeling of estrangement. Yeah, and things weren't quite right. You didn't have that golden rhythm that you'd had. No, we didn't. You know, we were no longer in love in that way. And, you know, I missed it. I always missed it. Um, And so we wrote the essay and we weren't allowed to talk to each other while we were doing it. And Elisa didn't believe it, that we didn't talk about them because when we turned ours in, we both had the exact same first line. What was the line? 
my mother was my first best friend. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my relationship with her mother was magic in that way. I'm only realizing this now. But there was that same level of just, I am happy because I am near you. That is not something you feel, you know, with most people in your life, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's how I feel about Steve Almond. Oh, <laughs> Cheryl's great. <laughs> no, honestly, you just, I'm making light because you're making me cry like you always do, Emily, <laughs> because we have that kin spirit of, you know, our moms being our first best friend. I think it's a really interesting thing to think about uh, that we, in some ways, we learned friendship from those bonds with our family. And then we go into the world and we're trying in some ways to replicate that. Right. So you had this first same line. And it was interesting to see how, in some ways, we were telling very much the same story, but in other ways, we really remembered things very, very differently. Wow. Um, Can you give an example? Because that's the thing that would sort of terrify me or freak me out, because mm-hmm. you had this thing together that was so intense, and then it ended, and... You know, this, there's this big unsettled business between you. And it's almost like those essays were engineering the conversation you never had with one another, where you say the truth of what you felt happened and why it happened and both the things you're still hung up on and angry about and the things you very much regret. So, I mean, what was it like to read that piece for the first time, to read Heather's piece? I remember reading it, you know, with just adrenaline flooding my body because again this was it was in galley form we'd really never talked about it but what I was struck by in both of our essays I mean I knew that in my essay I was not blaming Heather for anything I was very much trying to write um, an unsentimental and slightly unforgiving towards myself piece you know just a really honest piece like here's the way that I fell apart and here's the way that I failed and I think Heather similarly took some blame. You know, it was just like, oh, here's two young women who were going through this terrible, terrible time, and our instinct years later is to go, well, it was all my fault. Right. Obviously, we both had our moments of, you know, behaving badly. I, I definitely had more. But, you know, I was a crazy person. I was mad with grief. And our friendship had been so powerful and needed some sort of cataclysm in a way. And in writing that and going back to that time, I guess, served that purpose. Do you remember it feeling like we, we've gotten it out of our system or we can draw closer? Or was it more tentative than that? It was definitely more tentative than yeah. that. But I do, it, it felt like that was the first step. Like we can get back to this point where we won't be disappointed in each other, that we will be able to access that delight that we felt all the time in the beginning. And have you, do you have that now with her? Yeah. Yeah. She's coming to visit in June. And we went to see her and her family last June. And we have kids about the same age, same gender, who play together. Um, I feel incredibly lucky to have her back in my life. I think it's so fascinating that sort of two-part process that happened when you wrote those essays and then exchanged them, essentially. One is that you both decided to write something, beginning from the idea that you bore responsibility for the failure of that friendship. It wasn't about blaming the other in causing this estrangement. And then when you read the other person's essay, 
you were essentially listening really deeply to their perspective mm -hmm. on what happened. Even if it differed, as you said, you and Heather remembered things differently. You, you had different perspectives on this same experience that you shared. And in the act of reading, you were deeply listening. You know, and what a great prescription that is for, I guess, when we have conflict, whether it be with our romantic partners or our friends or our family members, how do you resolve these conflicts? And I, I think those two key ingredients of taking responsibility for your own piece mm -hmm. in the conflict and then listening to the perspective of the other person right. is yeah. is so essential to to being able to move forward and forgive and accept. I can think of a, of, of a lot of relationships that ended, you know, friendships where I wish that somebody had sat me down and say, now write your version of why that ended and what was going on. Right, but how hard would it be to do that? Like I think about the people, that, you know, that you were counseling, the letter writers, that kind of honesty is very difficult. Yeah. And had not Elisa Chappelle said, do it, <laughs> right. we might well, never it, have done it. You know, it was, yeah. it, it was, maybe and maybe you two will serve Elisa Chappelle's role for these people who have written in and <laughs> saying, do it. Say the thing that needs to be said. Mm -hmm. But also, interestingly, when you were talking, Emily, it occurred to me that one way that both of these women who are really trying to separate themselves from friends who are no longer really functioning as friends because of troubles, very deep, profound, real troubles that uh, they can't, they're really helpless to try to change, maybe a better approach than sort of enumerating those person's failings and sins is to say to themselves and to their friend, if necessary, I see how much pain you're in, and I am not strong enough mm -hmm. at this moment in my life to be a person who can be your support right now. I'm sorry about that personal failing, but I can't do it. This isn't a marriage. I'm not going to keep struggling. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I think is interesting about how, I mean, you assume that most romantic relationships are going to end, that you're going to break up with someone. Mm -hmm. yeah. All of them up until your, you know, final relationship um, will end. And that sucks, but you there is that understanding this is the way life works. But with friendships, it seems much harder to break up. You think they're the ones that are supposed to last forever. Yeah. And oftentimes they aren't. They don't. Or, or certainly there are long periods in which th that friendship isn't really functioning. Or, right. I mean, I actually, I love that about friendship. I, I love that, that I can have a real relationship with someone who I cannot speak to for years and then their life circles back again, and you reconnect, and you reconnect under new terms and also under those old terms of trust and uh, a sense of, of camaraderie. Thank you for being on our show. You are such a wise delight. It was really interesting to hear your story. Yeah, it was beautiful. Thank and and, you. And, a, and a kind of beautiful and inspiring turn of events with you and Heather coming back together after all those years. Yes, you could have, should much. give everybody hope, really. Yeah. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts.
So Cheryl, that was beautiful and inspiring because, you know, we're talking about friendship and, and had to offer counsel to a couple of women who really were clearly ready to be out of friendships. But then Emily tells this beautiful story that is of a friendship lost, but then regained and renewed. You know, just because things are tough or difficult or hard with a friend is not a cause always to end that friendship. Part of what a good friendship does is provide us solace in those times, a mutual solace, we hope, mm-hmm. when, you know, when each friend is is struggling. Yeah, absolutely. I think while I said earlier, it is really hard for me to confront a friend. But usually when I have, I was glad I did it because working through that conflict is what brings you closer. I mean, it's the friendships that weren't ultimately worth it to me that I just sort of backed away from instead of saying, you know what, I need to talk to you about something. I need to share my feelings and thoughts. When I risk doing that with a friend, you know, almost always it has served to bring that intimacy to a deeper level. That's right. So when we're done with the show, Steve, there's something I really need to talk to you about. Oh, no. (laughs) I knew it. I can tell that we are going to be friends. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin, and our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We record the show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon. Our engineer is Josh Millman. Our theme song is by Liz Weiss, and other music is by the Portland band called Wonderly. Find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please, we beg of you, send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. 